Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Brett. How are you? Hi, Jeff. I was thinking that... um, You were thinking. I was thinking that maybe we could start the podcast off in a different way by me asking you a question. Oh, no. And so the question for today You just is, asked me a question. The answer is yes. No, I said I was thinking about oh, okay. this, you know. I thought there was a question. But I appreciate that. Yeah. So the question is, if you could have a superpower, what would you have? And I guess we can ask our guests you mean, too, but we'll... You mean another superpower? Another superpower, okay. right? A non, you know, non-human uh, Oh, man, that's a tough question. Maybe be invisible. Invisible? Yeah. I like that one. Yeah. All right. Cool. I think Everyone, I would. Nobody be can able bother to me. Communicate with animals. <laughs> communicate. Be, yeah, Actually, you know what? Communicate with. Animals. I'd love to communicate with my dogs in a different yeah, way. Although, I just you know what? Being able to stare into their eyes and see them like without having the words. Right. I just says wonder, it all. Right. Isn't I that better would, form of communication? Right. I, would, I wonder if it would be. Too much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll I got to pee. Like your dog dynamics. would just be seeing her. You're thinking, man, my dog loves me. They're looking at me. They love, And all they're doing is going, I got to pee. I got to pee. I, why won't he take me outside? Why won't he take me outside? Yeah. And then it just ruins it for you. Yeah. All right. So let's, well, that was a good question. Though. Visibility. Yeah, I'd say visibility. I just, I can crawl. I can go into a corner and do my thing without anybody kind of watching You have me. that now though. You, you, know, no, you can go to the corner and no one bothers you. No, that is not true. <laughs> There you go. Thanks for the question, though. Our guest today is Josh Schiltz. Josh is the president of Schiltz CPA PLLC, which is a practice focused on assisting attorneys, individuals, and businesses with complex financial matters and disputes. He's a financial expert with a Mm -hmm. career focused on leading forensic investigations, economic dispute resolution, internal audits, business valuation. He's been involved with hundreds of forensic investigations dealing with a variety of matters involving personal corporate disputes. He's led multiple project teams in the implementation and design of internal control structures and processes to ensure compliance and mitigate corporate risk. He has also been qualified as an expert witness in state and federal courts around the country, I think around the country, right? Not just Florida? Or? Uh, mainly Florida. Okay, mainly some Florida. Some other courts, but I got some time to go. So, All right. Yeah. He provides expert testimony in commercial and criminal matters around business valuation, economic damages, fraud, and other applicable disciplines surrounding economic and accounting issues. And he also provides valuation services surrounding businesses and assets in the context of both litigation and uh, transactions. So welcome, Josh. Thank you, gentlemen. Happy to have you here. Today. Great to be here. Welcome, Josh. And yeah. what did, what's your, uh, so do you have a superpower that you would go with? So or? I've been lucky enough to be thinking about that. Yeah. I got to be able to fly, I think. You know, right. I just, that came to my head. I mean, you know, growing up, Superman, yeah. like, yeah. Uh, boy. Yeah. Would you wear the tights, though? Absolutely. You, you if that? I had the form, I you know. I think the beauty is that there are no tights necessary. You don't have a. So you, you know. go naked. Flying. Well, you could be, now. you know, we're going to be. You put it together, invisible flying. Can we, should we start this podcast? Well, if over? you're invisible, presumably you can do whatever you want. Yeah, but you can't fly. Well, I don't know. See, now if I'm invisible and I can fly, traffic, all that stuff is out the door. Now yeah, you don't need a helicopter. The question was one superpower, not two. Okay, okay. guys. Well, I have, Got it. I have, yeah. All right, I mean, let's steer back. One. Josh, so you're, how'd you become a. He, is, he has a superpower. How'd you come to sit? He's a CPA. In, he's a CPA. <laughs> That's right. Father of four actually oh, would be the, gosh, the right super pile. You got power. us beat. Yeah. You got us beat. Three wow. daughters too. Oh my gosh. 
Wow. Yeah. Um, Could well, end the podcast. Look at how everyone, I wish we had video to see your faces when I said I have four children. Yeah. Well, we each That's have it. three. And I feel like four is just so much more. <laughs> it's like, oh, it you know is. what I mean? I have to be the fourth of five, so I'm partial to number four, even though I don't have four. So four is, <laughs> that, that kid must be great. So She's the best. There you go. My favorite. There you go. They aren't listening to this. So They're all your favorite, right? Equally exactly. my favorite. Yes. Exactly. All right, let's, well talk, let's talk business. This is banter. Oh, we don't want to talk well, we business. business. This is banter. Yeah. Ha, this is ha, why Josh is here. When did you here? start your own firm? Because when I first met you, you didn't yeah. have your own firm. No, I wanted to be a lawyer when I was going to school. That was my whole thing. Woke up and wised up. No, yeah. I was lucky enough. I grew up in plantation and my dad was a professor at Nova and my little league baseball coach was Professor Mark Dobson. And so I could call Professor Dobson mm -hmm. and I remember him talking to me. I was at the University of South Florida and he, I was majoring in history and he goes, I love you, but unless you score an LSAT of 180, I just don't see it happening. And so his advice to me was, look, go the business route, but get the best degree. And I had been in the business school and I had dropped a, a financial accounting and, you know, me and my frat brothers took it at the community college mm -hmm. to get our credits. And so I was, I was really struggling with it. And then I had to take managerial accounting. Mm -hmm. And just like when I talked to other professionals, 20 years past their career, they go, oh, that one class, that was the class for me because as I hold up this glass, the world started to make sense and okay, I get it. Now there's some cost to this. And so the numbers visually started to come to me, still wanted to go to law school. FAU offered a master's of accountancy, forensic accounting. In Florida, you have to have that fifth year to get your CPA. I mean, after going through it, Started getting my master's. And then I was lucky enough to work at a firm you guys know, Racklin, Cohen, and Holtz. Mm -hmm. And I got immersed into a lot of different things. And I had a mentor who goes, how many lawyers are there? And I looked around and I go, there's a lot. And she goes, how many of the us are there? And she, I go, a lot less. And she goes, do you really think going to law school is a good part of your time? And so that, that hit. Law school was still kind of there, mm -hmm. but... To be able to work with like Barry Muckamal, Lori Holtz, you know, yeah. God rest his soul, yeah. and to see what they were doing within the legal. And, you know, I'm still in my 20s. I have an idea of what a lawyer is. But then I started to get into this forensic field. And I got to do a lot of different things. I did anti-fraud programs while I was at Royal Caribbean. I worked on the Lehman Brothers liquidation when I was at Deloitte in New York City. So... I saw the ability of this to do many different things. And, you know, what led me to Jacksonville, which I still think people struggle with, like, what are you doing in Jacksonville, Josh? My wife and I were ready for a change, got an opportunity at a quasi-governmental agency. And to how did I start my business? I always had an entrepreneurial feel. And working in corporate America, working at firms, I always felt like, handcuffed, right? Like I had to follow their model and just, it didn't resonate. And so as my wife now says it, I got the push I needed. I was let go. My wife was seven and a half months pregnant. I already had two. Mm. And um, when your back's against the wall and you got mouths to feed, it's do or die. And so again, I was lucky enough to work in South Florida with some really special people that I think not only taught me my craft, 
but also taught me work ethic. And I just went to work, started pounding on doors and saying, hey, I'm doing this. And I hung my shingle. So how did I get my start? Part of it was I wanted to dip my toe into the pool, but I really got that push that threw me in head first. And hindsight being 2020, I don't know if there's an easier way to do it, but I'm grateful for the lessons. Yeah. So yeah. how long ago was that when you started your own firm? Eight years ago now. Eight years, wow. Yeah. And good decision? <laughs> Best decision of my life. You know, I've listened to your podcast one of the things you talk about is health and wellness. I struggled with panic attacks in my 20s and 30s, mm. debilitating wow. to the point where, like, I, I can, my wife will tell you stories living in Manhattan where mm -hmm. there were mornings I did not want to leave my apartment because I had vertigo feelings and it was this anxiety. It wasn't until I started my own firm that the anxiety started to dissipate from me. And that's adding financial pressure, yeah. adding everything else. So I think removing myself from a place where I thought I needed to fit in into, okay, I'm going to do how I like to do things and I'm just going to work for it. You don't have time, right. as you guys know, when you're starting a business to worry, you kind of just go. Just do it, yeah. And so it's been personally the best thing that I've ever done for me, I think for mental health, forget financials, you know, I mean, finances come with it, obviously, if you work hard. But I just think when I look at who I am and how I've developed as a person, I don't know if I would have done that in a corporate structure. I think taking my licks, getting punched in the face yeah. was the best lesson I ever got in life. And fears, unnecessary worries that I used to have, mm -hmm have just slowly dissipated. But I think some of that comes from maturity, fatherhood. Age, age and experience. And right? fatherhood, right? And taking those licks and having those experiences. And I'm not suggesting that everyone has to go through that, but without, you know, I hate to use the word failure because it's, I don't, I just Fail forward? It, yeah, it's a, an experience, right? Without that, you don't know what it takes to move forward and succeed. Yes. Right? And I made a lot of steps forward that yeah. I regret. Well, I regret they were bad, but I've learned from them. Yeah. And so I, I don't make, I try not to make the same mistakes, you know? Right. Exactly. I have my firm. I have five people that work for me. We've mm -hmm. had as many as 13. We had a tax practice. We got it. And so I'm constantly trying to do that. And a lot of what I've learned is collaboration and buy-in. Right. Getting that team as opposed to before when my name was on the checkbook. It was just like, no, we're going to do it this way. So I've learned from that, yeah. you know? Yeah, but taking a step back, right, in order to get to the point where you felt comfortable enough to open your own shop, you had the, the substantive experience and knowledge of knowing, hey, I'm good at this. Can I transfer that and translate that into owning my own business, getting the work and doing it out from underneath that umbrella of another big firm or another another you know, name, another name, and That's relying right. on someone. No, you're a hundred percent correct there. I mean, and I talk to other cohorts in my field who are, Josh, how did you do it? What would you do? And mm -hmm. there is no. I go. I still wake up every single day thinking the lights will shut off tomorrow. I just think I've gotten used to it by now, a right. little bit more accustomed to it. If the lights go out, the lights go out kind of a situation. Right. To your point, though, I worked with people who just 
didn't stop. And so I saw that success. I also just recognized to own your own company is more, especially like the firm that I have, you know, we do forensic evaluation. You're dealing with complex situations. So you have to be technically sound. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's just a hat. As you guys know, running a firm, managing finances, HR, operations, putting all those things, not only has it made me a, a better professional, but it's helped me evolve. Back to my point, you had to be technically sound. Right. And that's base number one. And I would tell anyone, you know, I did a, a podcast with, or no, we did a, a speaking engagement, me and Richard Pollack, right? Yep. Berkowitz, Dick Pollack and Brand here. Everyone knows him. And what Richie said, and I take it to heart, he goes, you know, I think you need five to seven years of just put your head to the grindstone and learn that and take those failures yeah. in your report is terrible. This analysis doesn't make sense to me. To your point, I would have, if I hadn't had that, I would have never been able right. to do it. Right. And it's the hard work that you put in over those years. And it was tough. I, I was the panic attacks and I get I was it. I mean, 32 you know, and I became a director level, yeah. which in my field is very young. young. Yeah. You know, I was a manager at Royal Caribbean at 28, 29 years old. When I graduated, it was straight to FAU, still working, right? Mm -hmm. What was the next career progression? A lot of them were lateral moves, just different experience. I went to New York. I wanted a big four. I just wanted to feel it. So to your point, I worked at a big four. I worked at the boutique in South Florida. I worked in corporate America. And those experiences definitely gave me the confidence to say, I know how to produce a deliverable. I've seen it done at public companies, and I've seen it done at Joe Smith CPA. Yeah. You can't really create a business until you know how to do the, provide the service that the business <laughs> provides, basically. You know, it's like starting a law firm. You got to know how to practice law before you really, well, ideally you should know how to practice law before you, you know, you start a law firm. And ideally you should, you should know how to do evaluation before you do right, it. Exactly. But of course, exactly. yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and you have, but you haven't always provided expert testimony. No. That's a more, that's a later start, right? Well. Or more recent, I would say. But to your, you know, to the other question, you can't be an expert until you've done you something. You can't testify about it until you know. Right. right? You and, have expertise and about it. So my career is about 20 years, right? And the last eight have been on my own. I've been testifying for six of those years, right. okay? So those other 14 years, I was doing Sarbanes-Oxley internal controls even before right. I went and learned what evaluation was. Yeah. And back to the point, I built each stop. Even if I didn't think this was relevant to me being a financial expert, I tell people all the time, some of my, some of my greatest gifts are the Sarbanes work I did because I can look at processes and risk and controls. Mm -hmm. And that's easier to digest for a trier of fact than me talking about some quantitative discount rate analysis based upon public market data, right? Right. So I agree. I just think that those different experiences, the ability to learn, see other people do it too, right? So we talked about some of the people that we just mutually know. But when I was at Royal Caribbean, my boss, Tom Burke, he made me the, a writer. I remember I had to do a report the first time for the audit committee about a little issue. 
I gave him a 25 page report. He goes, we don't bill for things here. We, <laughs> they just want to know what they got to know. And that was a year of learning how to write in an executive summary. But that process, now when I write a Rule 26 report, here's my opinion, here's my basis for opinion, right? And and so, and I don't know about you guys, at a certain point in your life or in your career, you start to go, yeah, I've done this just a little bit differently. So you need that seasoning, especially in professional services. Because I think... When I start seeing people go into professional services, you talk about them doing the job, mm-hmm. but how much of it is identifying when a client needs us too. And without that experience, you're not going to be able to identify client needs. Right. And sometimes it's what not to do. It's learning what not to do. Because like with your 25-page memo, your tendency is to give a full-blown analysis, but sometimes just... Less is more. Less is more. You can, words are powerful. Right. I think, especially in what I do. Right. You can boil it down to one or two sentences if you really know what you're doing. So you didn't go to law school, but you work with lawyers. And fortunately, depending uh, on, you know. Does that make you a better (laughs) expert or better, you know, your interest in the law, does that make you better at what you do because you're enjoying it more or? Are you enjoying it less? So it's been a lesson. You really, if you do my type of work, I would tell anyone to know the lawyer and the person. I think that matters. I think understanding what their career progression is and how that aligns with you. Just as you guys said, you know, there's there's a lot of lawyers. And just like there's a lot of people, they all act differently. I'll tell you what I have come to. I've started to understand the business of law. Right. I think I understood like what it was on TV. I understood the business of law. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing I've learned is the power of the jurisdiction and understanding how those things come into play. I know we talk about it, you know, within the national media, but locally, right? I got a taste of it when I was here in Miami, Mm -hmm. gotten a taste of it up in Jacksonville. Understanding how important judges are is something that I never had, I think, a full understanding of, right? In what their position really entails. I don't envy them whatsoever. I don't envy lawyers. I think you guys got a tougher job than me. Me, I can hide behind, hey, my scope is X. You're expected to look at the whole ocean and see what's bubbling in it. So I think it's a respect, but I've had to go through my own lumps to understand sometimes what the context or what the ask is from the attorney and see how that fits, right? Yeah. You want to be business to business as much as you can. But when we're in a a setting, a deposition, whatever it may be, and it's close and personal, you want to have trust, right? You want to know that that attorney is watching out for you. You want that attorney to know that, hey, my opinion If I can or cannot give it, I'm watching out for you as well, too. So I think for me, relationships, even in this social media era, are still really important. Breaking bread, looking somebody in the eye, Mm -hmm. and understanding who he or she really is and what their objective is and how you play into it. So, yeah, all great stuff. As you can tell, I rehearse my testimony, you know, constantly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, you say rehearse, I would say prepare. Right. Same thing. Same thing. 
But I like your words. That's the other thing I've learned from attorneys. Yeah. Their word choices are much better than accountants. <laughs> That's what we're paid for, our words. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I was in a case, brings back years ago, I was in a case in bankruptcy court here. We had moved to strike an expert and the lawyer on the other side stood up and said, because we were arguing it was just a compilation. There was nothing to it. Yeah. It was just numbers. And uh, the lawyer stood up on the other side and said, you know, the expert is a CPA. He's an expert in numbers, just like we lawyers are experts in words. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, well, it took know. a lot of us to not laugh. <laughs> but there is something said differently, right? I mean, that's our job is to frame an argument, frame a position so that it would be receptive to an audience, whether Correct. that audience is a judge, whether that audience is opposing counsel, whether that audience is a mediator, whatever it is, or our client, right? I mean, that's yeah. our job. Just like a, so, you know, when I sit with a client in counsel, I tell them my Excel sheets that I'm going to put together and I'm going to give you a beautiful PDF, mm-hmm. that's a story. That's just a picture book story for right. me. Right. And, I try and align that with the complaint, the response, all the facts in that. And I think that's then where you're putting the soup together and really getting good work out of it, right? And that doesn't happen all the time. There's a lot of times the phone call is, we want X. And it's like, all right, go do what you got to do. And then you come in there with X and they go, well, this isn't what I asked for. And I have to explain to them, you know? And a lot of my job, I think, is educating Right. I really feel like, look, if you want to be an expert witness, you can be an advocate or you can be an educator. And so my job is to go up there, educate that, but also educate the client and counsel. Right. And take that complex thing and call it what it really is. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, this book, your comment about educating or being an educator, it brings me back to the comment you made before about trust, because Really, when you're an expert and you're testifying, it's about trust. You're about you're establishing trust between you and the judge. You're saying, look, judge, Brett is here asking for millions of dollars in damages, and you should trust me because I'm an expert on damages, and, and Brett's right. Those, those numbers are right. I've looked at them, and this is the value. And so it is a, there's an education component, but there's also a trust component. And obviously, you trust the lawyer. You're trusting Brett that he gave you the right data, and you're putting your name on the line when you make an expert opinion, but yeah, um, it's ultimately establishing trust. Yeah, and I think as we're talking about me and an expert witness, it all still resonates back to good business. These are foundational principles, right? And not just when I have business to business, but also internally, right? A lot of organizations, as we were talking about before, human capital. I think human capital is a fascinating topic right now. Not in like... In what way? So... It all resonates from family law and personal goodwill. But if you go and you look at the economists, the academics who have been writing papers in 12 and 14, we've been talking about personal goodwill just in a different format. It's human capital. What does that mean, personal goodwill? So in the context of a divorce, it means if I remove you from this business, what's the value of this business without you, right? But in the context of today, within your organization, my organization, a college kid listening to this, a 50-year-old who's thinking about a career change at their point. At the end of the day, most likely when you measure your business, you're looking at financials. Well, those are are just an economic benefit that you receive from people, 
So when we start talking about human capital, you got to look at it from the employer employee side. And I think you got to look at, okay, I see my costs. What's the economic benefit? And sometimes we're short-sighted in our economic benefits because we're not really accounting for future development. Now, couple all that with some things that have happened globally. There was a really good article in the New York Times that talked about the number of businesses in Japan that just never sold. Tens of thousands of businesses. They have an aging population similar to the U.S. That's a concern of mine, especially with the human capital and do I want to buy a manufacturing facility with 100 workers, but those 100 workers are 50 years old or my key employee is 55? Now, how do I take that when I know, okay, I know I'm going to need one or two key employees in this manufacturing. What does the workforce out there look like right now? And so what I'm talking to not just in a litigation valuation, we do a lot of advisory work, M&A with private equity. We're talking about sound investments and recognizing that just like buying a capital investment for a desk, people are becoming much, much more of a capital investment. So you're saying we depreciate over time? True. No. The difference is I think we become more valuable over time, except that maybe the shelf life. Then there's a point where you then start to depreciate. I had a really good talk with my buddy who's an estate attorney, and we're the same age. And this is where I started thinking about human capital, myself as a product, right, in my business. He goes, how long do you want to do this for? Because a lot of people we talk to go, especially the lawyers that I know, Josh, I'm done at 50, I'm done at 55, and they're going to burn until they're at that point. And that's definitely one way to do it. I have four children. My youngest is three. I have three daughters. That's three bat mitzvahs, three weddings. You see what I'm getting at? And I like what I do. So do I take that now and extend that out for the next 30 to 35 years? And if I do one of that, and I treat myself like an asset, just like we've said, that car has a useful life, but I can extend that useful life. I can extend that useful life if I meditate, if I get my butt up in the morning and I go and go to the gym. I mean, I there's go for a run, go, go for a walk at lunchtime right. just to, I don't know if you guys watch or listen to Huberman, Andrew Huberman. Yeah, I okay. I love so I love him too. And one of the things he talks about is looking at sunlight and how that's a positive benefit early in the morning and then at night. So I started looking at myself as like a depreciating asset, but saying, I'm going to keep that useful life as long as I can. And to your point, we do get better as we get older. Right. Right. And how can I increase that? Because a 60 year old Josh should be worth more an hour than a 40 year old Josh. Right. Yeah. And if I'm healthy, and I'm active, and I'm not burnt out, I can keep being that economic engine, right? Right. And so now look at that in the context of professional accounting firms. Struggling. There's accounting graduation rates are down. They've been down since COVID. KPMG has to hire 70,000 people a year. They can't meet that right now. Whoa. 70,000 a year? Yes, sir. Globally, think about how big KBMG yeah. is. Wow. Yeah. Probably all the big four in that are in that range, right? I mean, because the general business model is we'll keep you, we're going to keep a glut of you for two to three years. Right, and then <laughs> send you off, right? Or whatever. Then we'll level them up. <laughs> right. 
And so a lot of people leave too. Yeah. So when people ask me, why'd you start your firm? I go, supply and demand. How many people are not becoming accountants? And then how many people are not going the extra right. steps to be an ASA or whatever those letters are behind my right. name? Right. It's simple supply and demand. And I see that in all professions. I think there's a 10 to 15 year run, if you will, that we need to be rethinking operating models. If you listen to Peter Zeehan, he's a global economist, kind of a Z-I-E-H-A-N. He talks about, it won't be to my kids are in the workforce that we start to see the supply of it. My parents had families with two kids mainly, right? So there's just less of us in comparison to the millennials. So it's an interesting time economically when you have not only global changes, Mm -hmm. but now how is this impacting? Like I look at our workforce as the engine for all these companies. Sure. That's where I see risk. But I wonder how, you know, the fact that people work longer further into their older age past. You used to be, you know, 62 and a half, I'm going to retire, you know. And now it's people, like you just said, 30 years, right? So you'd be, you know, in your 70s, right, at that point. So God willing. Right, so people are hanging on. They're working longer because they some want to, some have to, you know, it just depends. You know, that also adds to the workforce, but once they kind of move off. Yeah, it's a mirage, right? It's like sort of the... Anyway, they're counted. You know, when I value a business, there's three things that matter. And I tell this to everyone. I care about the economic benefit, the cash flow. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's talk about cash flows. If I got a... If I'm looking at historicals and I'm not seeing expenses for hiring, recruiting, training, are those future expenses? And then I compare that to salary costs. Am I getting a good deal right now? That's one thing that we look at. Growth rate. How much can we really grow? Well, if you don't have enough lawyers to feed it, how can you grow? And then obviously the risk. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at those three things and growth If you start talking to various economists and people in my field, they'll say there's no organic growth really anymore. So, you know, where are we going with my business? That's what I'm not only trying to look at from a valuation sense, but just operationally, what are these constraints going to do for us? And am I crazy? Probably a little bit. I like to talk about things that aren't written down. I see that as a risk, but I also see it as an opportunity, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Especially for professionals in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. I mean, the run's here, right? I mean, you really have a unique opportunity out there with the amount of baby boomers that are retiring and need service. So get it while it's getting good. And obviously, maybe this might be the topic for another podcast, but how do you view AI, technology, playing into this, the human capital problem, because there's going to be a lot of increased efficiencies. And I look at AI as a tool that will help mitigate the human capital risk. I do. I think that, you know, I don't look at these problems in six months or three months or one year. I look at decade long problems for them to unwind and for us to get into it. And so with AI, I think that having to pay somebody to enter data into a spreadsheet, those days are gone, Gone, which I'm happy about. That's a waste of my client's resources. So 
In my own practice right now, we're using software programs that'll take reams of bank statements, investment statements, and for a fraction of a price within 24 hours, I have an Excel file. Now, maybe we spent 20% of the budget on that as opposed to 60%, but now I got a big budget there that I can start understanding the information and playing into it. So I'm all open for AI. What I would say is we cannot look at it as like it's taking jobs away. We need to look at the new jobs that are going to come out of that, right? That's always the case, right? So technology will, it may take away some jobs, right? Think about toll booth operators. I mean, you you don't really see those anymore, but that would allow them in theory to take a new position that technology has created. And I yeah, think that's so, likely to happen. And I don't want to get into politics, but when you talk uh, talk about what I'd like to see my tax dollars go into, mm-hmm. education. And, uh, and well, yeah. common like math and science and writing and create these next mechanical engineers, right? Or create the people that will do those jobs. That's where I see the cycle. But that's a 20-year flip at best. Yeah, yeah. It starts early in education, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if they're not learning it at three, four, five, six, yeah. right? Like, until we fix that, we're just punting. Yeah, but they don't know what... I mean, the work that they're doing or, or the studies that they're learning at, at that age, three, four, five... There's The careers haven't even been Correct. created yet for people who are three, four, five. So... Forensic accounting wasn't a thing when I was, I mean, yeah, I think, look. I'm looking for robots to to replace lawyers. Here we are on the practice podcast, solving global No, no, just creating chaos, actually. Yeah, Yeah. just making people feel like, I'll get calls and they'll say, Josh, are you telling me I should take my money out of the market? (laughs) That's what (laughs) will happen after that. (laughs) Well, if you get that call, that means one thing. That means they listen to this episode. And if they listen to this episode and they enjoy the show, then hopefully they'll subscribe and they'll leave a review. Because subscribing to the show and leaving a review helps others find the show and helps us grow and helps us devote more time and resources. And I'm all about Produce better content and have great guests like Josh on the show. This is fun, Josh. I really... I think this is great podcast. Hopefully I wasn't too dry. No. I, but I love how you guys are bringing different facets in. I think it's great. Like what I'm talking about is we need to listen to perspectives. Yeah. You may not like it, but listen. Yeah. That's We're it. interested Agreed. in hearing what people have to say. So. Agreed. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thank you. Nelson. Thank you, Thank Nelson. You. Bye, Jeff. Bye, Brett. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.